I am George Anderson. I am Elizabeth Link. I am Ben Brannan. We are going on a journey through the Gospel of Mark with a sermon series titled, Reimagined. Together, we'll explore why the Gospel is in such a hurry for readers to get to know and keep up with Jesus. Today's sermon is a stop along the way of that journey. Join us as we reflect on what was, rethink what is, and reimagine what will be. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that in the reading of Scripture, in the proclamation of the sermon, and now in the enacting of your word, that it is your living word that we hear, and that we might not only hear, but believe it and live it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I assure you, George is preaching today. But I do want to just take a moment to talk quickly about our sermon series that comes to an end today. Since Rally Day, way back in September, September 12th, we as a church have engaged in and committed to reading and exploring the wonderful witness that is the Gospel of Mark. So thank you for journeying with us through our sermon series as we reimagined what is and what will be. Additionally, we read through the entire gospel in our reading guide, and we responded to prompts that pointed us toward a call for deeper discipleship. What week was your favorite? What prompt drew you closer to this gospel? What story in the gospel stood out to you most? And I wonder how the gospel story as a whole changed for you throughout this process. There was some intentionality to the prompts in the reading guide. So, for example, if you wrote a thank you note to Jesus in week four, or you um, did a drawing or a poem in week seven, or for this week, you may write a monologue as a character in the passion narrative as told by Mark. If you did any of these, please send them to the church. We may use your work in future services. But we do need to specifically thank two individuals. I want to extend a thank you to Dr. Brian Blunt, the president of Union Presbyterian Seminary, who preached on the matter of love, asking the question, what's love got to do with it? Everything. Love has everything to do with a life of faith. And also want to thank Frank Runyon for bringing the gospel to life as we brought visitors from the community into our sanctuary to witness a theatrical portrayal of the Gospel of Mark. And I think a thanks also needs to be extended to our executive pastor, Reverend Elizabeth Link, and to the Trent Fund for making that night possible. So I thank you for journeying with us in the Gospel of Mark as we reimagine what is and what will be. So today, for our final reading in our series, let us turn to chapter 16 in the Gospel of Mark and hear God's word to us. This day. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the Mary mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they may go and anoint him, Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. 
They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they, they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ben, for that. I have journeyed through the Gospel of Mark not only with many of you, but also with a group of ministers. My weekly minister's Bible study has been working through Mark using a commentary written by a future Edmonds lecturer here, Ben Witherington. At our study last week, we talked about how Jesus almost always uses other people's stuff in his ministry. Well, once, maybe he did something with something he owned, his own home. Matthew's gospel says that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. So when Mark reports that it is heard that Jesus is at home in Capernaum, then maybe that was his house. Maybe it was Jesus' house where the crowd gathers so thick that some guys tear a hole in the roof to lower their paralyzed feet to Jesus' feet, which means that Jesus healed the man. We read that in the gospel, but might also mean that he had to go on and repair his own roof. But everything else that Mark reports is happening in a house, teaching, healing, welcoming those whom others reject, having debates, it's always in somebody else's house, the home of Simon and Andrew, of Simon the leper, of someone's home in Gentile country where he ministers to a woman with a flow of blood. And let's not forget the Passover meal, Jesus' last supper, where the place where they ate is simply because a homeowner is told that the master has need of it. And so show them the guest room. And it's not just the houses. Think of the other stuff that belongs to others that Jesus uses. When Jesus stands in a boat to teach, it's Peter's boat. When he is told that thousands are hungry, he tells the disciples to collect what they can from the people around to see what they can do about it. When a scribe challenges him to answer the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He has to ask someone else for a coin, for a denarii, before he can say, look at Caesar's inscription, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Someone provides a donkey so Jesus can ride down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem because a message came to the owner saying, the master has need of it. My goodness, even when Jesus dies, he's buried in somebody else's tomb. And just to give my point a final sharpening, take a quick peek at the beginning of Luke's gospel. When Jesus is born, is in some other town and he's laid in a manger because there's no place for them in the end. 
not his boat, not his house, not his bread and fish, not his coin, not his donkey, not his tomb. Almost the entire ministry of Jesus takes place in other people's places using other people's things. And you might remember he teaches the disciples to follow his lead, sending them out two by two to offer a ministry of healing. He tells them to take no bread or bag or money of their own with them, but depend on others to offer their houses, to depend on others' hospitality. You and a cynic would call them moochers. I don't see them that way. I told the other ministers at the Bible study that they reminded me of Deep South preachers. I grew up as a preacher's kid in the Deep South. I had internships in the Deep South, and before moving to Roanoke, I served a church in the Deep South, a church in Mississippi, where I just assumed, as I had been trained to assume, this, that if it belongs to a church member, it's available to the church. If someone had a lake house and I wanted to use it for a staff retreat, the only issue was if it was being used already. If someone had a swimming pool, there was no question that the youth could use it. I just had to schedule it. If someone had a big den and a dining room, then they had the house that we needed for a prospective member dinner. And if someone had certain skills as a lawyer or a handyman or someone good with Apple IIe computers, then I would call that person first before spending the church's money on a specialist. You know, I carried that same assumption when I came here to Second Presbyterian Church 23 years ago. And I got away with it, too. I mean, it's remarkable how often people will say yes when the tone of the preacher asking is, of course you're going to say yes. But I began to notice that the assumption in Virginia was not as strong as it was in Alabama and Mississippi. And since being pushy or manipulative is not my thing, I've learned to be more open to a no when I ask and more grateful when I hear a yes. However, I don't think Jesus ever wavered from that assumption that, of course, your life and resources should be available at all times for the causes of the gospel. Now, for Jesus, that did not always mean the church, or in his case, the synagogue, or even always something identified with religion. But it is clear that he expected others to do what they could to spread the good news of the gospel in the same way that he did, by preaching and teaching about the love of God and neighbor, teaching God's law, helping the hurting, noticing the forgotten, showing grace to the excluded, witnessing for justice and working for peace. And judging by our passage from the Gospel of Mark, the passage that Ben read earlier, God feels the same way. When three women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body for burial, they are shocked to find the tomb empty except for a young man wearing a white robe. And the women, they're a bit traumatized. And they respond to what they see, not to what the young man tells them. They run from the tomb, afraid, and they don't do what he tells them to do, and that is to find the disciples and tell them that Jesus is not here, that Jesus is raised, and he will meet them in Galilee. Well, here we are, many years and many miles away. So this isn't so traumatizing. We've heard this story before. We can actually think about what the young man is saying. 
So what is it that he's saying? He is saying that Jesus is going to be found where the disciples live in Galilee. How about that? Jesus is still getting in their lives and business. Not even death dampens Jesus' assumption that the gospel will continue to be spread through others. As the book of Acts makes clear, it's going to be deja vu all over again. The gospel will advance in all the ways that they advanced in the stories of Mark. Through their homes, where they work, and with the sick, and with the outcast, and in the middle of life's debates, in conversations about what is right and wrong among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. It doesn't stop. Well, what are we to hear in this? Maybe if we're looking for Jesus, it won't be in some house that Jesus has in heaven, but in the midst of our lives. At church, yes, because that's where we gather to worship, learn, and pool our resources to proclaim the gospel in targeted ways. And yes, also at home, where hopefully character is formed as parents live out their baptismal vows but also in the world where character really matters. The neighborhood, the workplace, in messy politics, in hard conversations, in all that can be done to help our world reflect just a little bit more the vision of the realm Jesus described when he spoke of and demonstrated the kingdom of God. You know, it's often said that Mark's gospel is incarnational. You remember the the symbol for Mark's gospel is a human being. That is that the gospel is found in the fleshy life of Jesus. Well, I would add that this means that Mark is also materialistic. Because life is lived through the stuff of life. Relationships and power expressed in the goods and services of the world. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound holy. And maybe that's why theologians have dressed this message up a bit by calling it sacramental. By the bread and wine of the table, by the water of baptism, by the material stuff of life, we can find God's grace and we can show God's grace or not. After all, The nails used to build houses are just as easily used to nail hands and feet to a cross. When Frank Runyon performed his adaptation of Mark's gospel, the play ended with him saying, the gospel begins. I think Frank captured the spirit of what Mark is trying to tell us at the end. The good news of Jesus is to be a story that is told now, moving forward with our lives. We will find and follow Jesus where he was found and followed when he walked on this earth. Certainly he will be found and followed in places of worship for we remember Jesus going to the synagogue, but he will be found and followed where we live and work, where the decisions of our lives are made, where justice and compassion are needed, and where character and morals really count where lives are affected, where there are consequences for what we do and what we say and what we get involved in. 
The title of this sermon is Mission Reimagined. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the normal way we think about missions. It's helpful. It, it's important. It's, it's how we can distinguish things. That is that missions takes place when we go out and do something. It takes place at the Presbyterian Community Center. It takes place through the work of Union Presbyterian Seminary and even over there in the Dominican Republic. But that's a limited understanding, however, and we need to remember that because mission is always described as over there, something we go to. It's something that we set money aside for or that we set time aside for. It's something that we volunteer for. Or if we do get paid for it, we might even call ourselves a missionary. And when support of those missions is seen in the budget, we call it outreach. That is, we go out there to do good, and then we come back to our lives. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if our passage is truly understood, there is a, true, a deeper meaning that we have to remember. And that is that the mission of God, that is the gospel itself working its way out, it being advanced or not advanced, is in how we live our lives and manage our resources every single day. Because it hasn't stopped this habit of Jesus to use what belongs to us. He continues to have the audacity to say, I need you in a way that just assumes that you know that the answer should be yes. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.